Neuroscience Frontier, a podcast of the University of Oklahoma Graduate College Neuroscience Program. For more content, follow us on Twitter at OU Neuroscience. Good morning and welcome to Neuroscience Frontier, the podcast of the OUHSC Neuroscience Graduate Program. I am Dr. Zachary Smith, one of the co-directors of the OUHSC Neuroscience Graduate Program, and I'm joined here today with Dr. David Sherry, my fellow co-director. Our guest today is Dr. Sanjay Bidichandani, the Chief of Genetics in the Pediatrics Department here at OUHSC, and he is the Director of the Genetics Research Laboratory. He also holds the David L. Boren Professorship in Pediatrics and the Claire Gordon Duncan Chair. Dr. Bidi Chandani's educational path includes a medical degree from the University of Pune in India, master's and PhD degrees at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and postdoctoral training at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. His research focuses on a rare disease named Friedrich's ataxia. Many people may not be familiar with Friedrich's ataxia. Can you tell us a little bit more about this disease, how it arises, why research into this disease is so important? Yeah, so, you know, um, first of all, thank you for having me here um, on this podcast. It's pretty exciting. Um, I, I just want to say that, you know, one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people haven't heard of Friedrich's ataxia is because it is a rare disease. Um, it affects about one in 40,000 people. So just to put that into perspective, um, there'll be about you know, five to 10,000 people in the U.S. with this condition. So let's just start with the name, right? So the name is Friedrichs or Friedreich's ataxia. And that's another problem with it is that ataxia doesn't easily translate, right? So ataxia means incoordination, which actually ends up meaning unsteadiness in walking and unsteadiness in, in movement and that sort of thing. So the typical patient will have you know, no symptoms until their early teens. And then they start to become unsteady. They trip on things. And it's a progressive condition, so it gets worse over time. And, you know, by the mid-20s, um, they will be dependent on some kind of mobility device and eventually be in a wheelchair. And then, finally, they start to develop a heart condition, and that's actually the leading cause of mortality in this condition. So it's a progressive condition. There's a lot of morbidity during the prime of life, and it's life-limiting. So that's the, the condition we're talking about. Now, there's no treatment for this, so obviously trying to understand what causes it and how to fix it becomes a really important thing to do. And so that's why research is important in this field. Um, let me just say one more thing. So Friedreich's, or let's just call it FA. FA is a genetic condition, right? So, you know, for, for lay people out there, you know, genetics is kind of confusing. So if you just think about it, you know, our body is made up of proteins and we have something like 25 to 30,000 genes that we inherit as two copies, one from mom, one from dad. And, you know, when I was a postdoctoral fellow, um, I was part of the group that found this gene that we called frataxin. And uh, we found that this gene is, it tends to be defective. And when you inherit a defective gene from mom and a defective gene from dad, so now you have no functioning frataxin genes, you end up getting this condition called Friedrich's ataxia. Um, so, you know, a lot of the work that's going on right now is trying to understand how this defect actually causes FA and how to actually fix it. You, you mentioned the heart. I've always heard that it impacted the spine as well and myelin. It, is it that the protein impacts both the heart and the spine? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so this uh, 
so, you know, like we said earlier, genes make proteins, and this gene makes a protein called frataxin. And frataxin is required for efficient energy production by the cell. So cells that depend on oxidative phosphorylation by the mitochondria, those are the ones that are susceptible to um, you know, um, um, uh, this condition. So heart cells, neuronal cells, beta cells in your pancreas. And so that's why you end up getting this triad of a neurological def deficit, heart condition, and diabetes. Now, the, the spine you mentioned and, and some of the foot deformities, these are typically secondary defects. So they occur because you have the neurological uh, manifestations. So can you tell us a bit more about uh, the genetics of frataxin and how it's regulated? Yeah, so, you know, the, the frataxin gene that I mentioned earlier, and I, I just used kind of a generic term to say that, you know, it can be defective. And, and you know, in genetic conditions, typically when we're talking about a, a gene defect, we're talking about a spelling mistake in the gene or the gene is broken or deleted in some way. Um, in what we found in FA is this really unique kind of genetic change. So you get this, um, what's called a triplet repeat expansion. So all of us, I mean, everybody, whether you have FA or not, has this little sequence that reads GAA, GAA, GAA multiple times. And as long as you're under 30 GAA repeats, your gene works just fine and there's no problems. Um, the moment you cross over 100 of these uh, GAAs and patients will typically have 500 or even 1,000 of these GA repeats, that tends to shut the gene off, okay? And the gene is shut off by a mechanism that we call epigenetic silencing, right? Now, the, 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 you know, I told you that we got like 30,000 genes in our cells. The, the, this is a very normal thing that the cell does. Uh, it uses epigenetic silencing to keep some genes on and some genes off. And so that's a very normal way in which the genes in cells are regulated, right? But in FA, there's this abnormal situation where a gene that's normally on, just because it has this long repeat, now becomes epigenetically silenced. The gene is off, you don't make enough frataxin, and you end up getting FA. So speaking on the genetics, how is it inherited? How, if, if a mom and a dad, if, if one of them has a history of this in, in their genetics, how is it passed along? I mean, we've heard this term autosomal recessive. What does that mean for someone in terms of what a genetic counselor would talk to them about? How does this get passed along from one generation to the next? Yeah, so, so you know, FA is, as you said, it's an autosomal recessive condition. Um, and what that really means is that mom and dad are both carriers for this condition. So they don't actually have any uh, clinical manifestations at all. They are perfectly asymptomatic and because they have one defective gene and one gene that is functioning normally, and each of them. And so when you inherit, when the child inherits the defective gene from each of the parents, now this child then develops... FA, and actually is the first time that this family then gets flagged as having this genetic condition in the family. And what the genetic counselor will then meet with the family and tell them, well, you know, if you guys are carriers, this means that your brothers and sisters may be carriers. There might be other people in, in the family who could be susceptible to getting this condition. But most importantly, the subsequent uh, children that this couple will have, have a one in four chance of having another child with FA, and that's typically what the counselor will tell the family. 
we know there's a lot going on in research for FA. What are the next giant leaps in the field that will really help with therapies? Um, I, I know therapy is, is something that's really the next step. Yeah, so, you know, um, it, you, you know we, we said that the gene for Friedreichs has you know, been identified now, it's what, 25 years ago. And so there's a lot of research that's gone into uh, figuring out, you know, how you actually get FA at the molecular level, at the cellular level, mouse models and things like that. So frankly, the next big step is going to be the development of a therapy. So let me just say one thing. So, you know, we said that in FA, people have a deficiency of frataxin that causes a mitochondrial deficiency. And so the cell doesn't make enough energy. And so all this time we've known that. And so there've been lots of clinical trials that have actually been done on, you know, just improving mitochondrial function, improving neuronal, um, you know, survival and things like that. Those are non-specific therapies, okay? So the next big step is the development of rational therapies that are actually designed to replenish this deficiency of frataxin. So, for example, uh, there's a company that's developing uh, a version of frataxin that can actually penetrate cells. It's called tatfrataxin, and that has gone through a phase one clinical trial already, and it is shown to be, um, you know, uh, safe and, and well tolerated at this point. It's also widely distributed, and so that's something that will now go to the phase two trial. So that's a, a kind of the next step. Uh, there's a lot of companies developing gene therapies for FA. So your gene doesn't work. Let's give exogenous genes that will work and, and actually replenish the deficiency of frataxin. So that is giving exogenous frataxin. There's another group of people, which includes my lab, and we are saying, you know, all these genes are sitting there. The only problem is the gene is off, right? So how about we give small molecules that can actually turn the gene back on? And so that's another uh, sort of next big leap that's going to take uh, you know, place going forward. How do you turn it on? Uh, yeah. when, when do you turn it on? Yeah, so, so I mean, the, the point is that it is a, a the epigenetic silencing is from birth. So these, the genes are off, they're off in every single cell, right? Um, and because the key cells that we want to turn these genes on in will be in the nervous system, in the heart, and, and maybe skeletal muscle and other places in the body, right? And so that's the reason why you want to use a small molecule that can actually, when it's given systemically, will go across the blood-brain barrier and across other you know, membranes and get to different places. So for instance, um, there are HDAC inhibitors, so histone deacetylase inhibitors that are designed to reverse epigenetic silencing. And so for almost three to four years, we worked with uh, a company called Biomarin, and they've been sending us you know, a, a bunch of molecules to actually see if the gene can be specifically turned on. Now, obviously, the danger there is you don't want to turn other genes on that are meant to be off. Uh, and so that's sort of one of the things to, to, to be aware of. There are other people who are using small pieces of DNA called oligonucleotides that can also be delivered either intrathecally, so directly into the spinal fluid, so it goes into the nervous system, or systemically, so they usually put it subcutaneously and it actually gets wide distribution if it's packaged right and if it's chemically modified in the right way. And these small molecules can, these um, small DNA molecules can also uh, turn the gene back on. So this is just a way to get genes that are resident. So these are, we're not adding anything extra just to get the genes that are already there to come back on. 
So since we're talking about sort of genetic manipulations associated with disease, one of the things you hear about in the news a lot is this technique called CRISPR. Can you tell us a bit about CRISPR and how it might actually be relevant in, in treating disease such as FA? Yeah, so, you know, um, so CRISPR, so let me just step back a little bit first and say, you know, this last year and a half, you know, humanity has basically been ravaged by this virus, COVID, right? Um, everybody's aware of that and our lives have changed because of that. And many people have lost their lives because of that. Um, and, you know, it's, we understand at, at a conceptual level how virus can actually attack humanity, right? And we're familiar with flu virus, smallpox, you know, so many other viruses. So we're, we're just, we know that viruses can attack us. We also know that there are some people who can fight it back, right? So they can have an immune response and fight the virus, or at least they'll develop an immunity for subsequent infections. And that's what the vaccination is doing for all of us right now. Um, and so while we understand that, I don't think most people think that viruses also attack bacteria. Now, viruses actually far outnumber bacteria and they're constantly attacking bacteria. And bacteria have an immune system, an adaptive immune system, that responds to this viral attack and attacks the virus, right? And amongst the different you know, uh, strategies that bacteria use, CRISPR is actually their adaptive immune system. So it is a system that recognizes the, the, the DNA from the virus and cuts that DNA and damages that DNA. And so that's the base, that's the, that's the origin of CRISPR. And a few clever people came up with this and said, well, if it can recognize sequences and if it can cut sequences, why don't we use those tools to actually do the same for the human genome? Right. And so in 2012, there was this landmark paper where um, a couple of you know, few researchers that came together and did exactly that. So what they did was they used the machinery from the bacterium, but they introduced it into human cells and they found that you could very specifically cut a gene. And if you could cut a gene, you could insert something into that cut spot. But now they've taken it even further and you can make single changes. So it's like a word processor for the human genome and the human genome is large. And if you say that you wanna just go and take out a small piece or change one base, then obviously that's gonna be a difficult thing if you want to not hurt other parts of the genome. But CRISPR has this really cool, high fidelity you know, way of doing it where they can actually, it uses basically a word processor for the human genome, right? And so immediately all the researchers said, well, that's pretty cool. So all the research guys took it on and said, we can knock this gene out. We can add some things to genes and, and do things, you know, manipulate genes to study their function. But at the same time, lots of people who were developing therapies said, hey, this is a cool way to use this tool to develop therapies. And I just checked yesterday, there are 36 interventional clinical trials ongoing right now using CRISPR. Now, some people might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, are you putting this machine into the body and, and it's, you know, going, you know, f having a, you know, basically a free shot at your genome. And, and most of the trials actually involve ex vivo trials. So you take cells out of the body, you modify the cells, you make sure that the cells are modified in the right way, and then you put the cells back into the person. So you reduce the risk, right? So that's most of the trials. But Recently, they've started doing actual in vivo trials. So they put the CRISPR machinery, for example, into your retina, and it actually corrects some of the retinal cells. Now, the retina, obviously, the eye is a little bit immunologically 
you know, privileged. It doesn't get affected by the immune system of the body. It's more limited. So the chances of damaging the rest of the body is less, but at least proof of principle that you can put it into the body and actually make the change happen. So this is when you're trying to actually word process. So you're changing, you're, you're deleting a gene or you're adding something to the gene. But you can also use CRISPR, as we do in the lab, um, to modify the epigenetics of the genome. So you can actually say, you know what? I don't want to cut anything. I don't want to change any sequences. I just want to take this gene that is on and make it off, and a gene that's off and make it on, okay? And so we've been using CRISPR to do just that to mimic what happens in FA. So in FA, I told you it's an epigenetic silence, so you go from on to off. And so we've been using um, the, the CRISPR mechanism to actually s develop the switch to go from on to off. And we've actually been able to, to do that. Our paper's actually in review right now, so hopefully oh, excellent. we get it out there. Sanjay, genetics, extraordinarily interesting field. Neuroscience, you study Friedrich's ataxia. How, how did you get interested in this? Uh, how, what was your career path? How, how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah, you know, so in, in the intro, you mentioned that, you know, I, I, I have a medical degree. And so I, I went to medical school in, in India. And while I was in medical school, I had a mentor who uh, was a geneticist. Remember, this is this is before PCR, this is before all the, the, the genes had been identified, and, and he was a cytogeneticist and looked at chromosomes. Um, and because of uh, this guy, I got interested in genetics and, and specifically in research. I'd never been exposed to research before. So when medical school finished, instead of going into residency, I actually decided to go to graduate school. So I went to um, the University of Glasgow, as you mentioned, and got a PhD there in medical genetics. And um, and in those days, it was really hot to be looking for genes that cause human disease. So, you know, today we take it for granted that we know the genes for Huntington's myotonic dystrophy, Duchenne, cystic fibrosis, all of these genetic conditions. In those days, none of these had been identified yet. And so I came to uh, the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston for my postdoctoral fellowship, and I joined this group um, to identify the gene for FA. And luckily for me, in my during my fellowship, you know, this uh, discovery happened. And once we found this um, interesting triplet repeat expansion that had never been discovered before, um, um, I just got hooked onto that and, and have been working in FA ever since. You mentioned that to be involved in a career in genetics, you don't necessarily have to be in a research lab. Can you tell us more about the career tracks that exist in the area that people might be able to follow if they're interested? You know, that's a great question because, um, you know, all this time we've been talking about, you know, the genetics of FA and, and that just makes it seem like a lot of the action and a lot of the work actually happens um, in a lab setting. And, and that's, you know, that just happens to be what I do. So we, you know, identify genes, we identify what causes uh, the defect and try to fix it. Um, but I'm also the, uh, you know, the head of uh, genetics here at Children's Hospital, and we have a group of 60 people that are part of the Department of Pediatric, so this is pediatric genetics, um, and we have um, all kinds of genetics uh, professionals. So for example, um, you can have people who are, um, you know, medical genetics, uh, medical geneticists, so they've finished medical school, they do residency typically in pediatrics, OB, or internal medicine, 
and then after that they'll do two years of um, of genetics clinical genetics and then they become board certified and board eligible as clinical geneticists so they're the ones who are seeing patients on a day-to-day -day basis making diagnoses and now increasingly even um, you know giving uh, treatments that have been approved um, uh, for many of the genetic conditions um, and then you have people who are either MDs or PhDs um, and do what's called a clinical lab fellowship and they are trained to run uh, diagnostic labs uh, of two kinds, either molecular and cytogenetics or biochemical genetics. And we have two, um, both of these diagnostic labs here on campus, and we do about between six to 7,000 tests every year. And we have um, directors for both of these labs and assistant directors for these labs. So these guys are PhDs, MDs, and have actually gone through these accredited fellowship programs and are board certified to run these labs, almost like pathologists actually. And then um, uh, there's you know a profession that um, unfortunately, not many people have heard of, and these are genetic counselors. And you know, you asked about genetic counselors earlier and what a genetic counselor will tell the family. Now, genetic counselors play a very key role in delivering healthcare to people who have genetic conditions. So when a family comes in with a suspected genetic condition, they're actually seen by both the MD and a genetic counselor. A genetic counselor actually will sit with the family, do a detailed pedigree analysis, explain to the family what um, a, a defect in one part of the family means to somebody in another part of the family, what the risks are, what kind of tests are available. They then recontact the family on an annual basis, maybe even, um, maybe even more often than that, based on discoveries that have happened that could help these families to actually bring them back in and, and give them new tests or maybe even therapies for that matter. Um, and this is a graduate program, it's a master's level program, two years. And, and I mention all of these things uh, also to say that on this campus, um, we have a medical genetics residency program. We have both clinical lab fellowships pro fellowship programs that are also accredited. We also run the master's in genetic counseling program. And of course, we are part of the, the PhD program that you know, generates um, um, basic science researchers in neuroscience and genetics and things like that. So you know, being a geneticist is like all kinds of different ways to be a geneticist. Okay, thank you. We know that you're involved in some groups, patient advocacy groups. So one is FARA, there are other associations. How does this help patients? How does this help um, people understand what's going on in the field and the research that's being done? Yeah, you know, thank you so much for asking this question. Uh, let me just first step back and say, you know, what do we mean by a patient advocacy group, right? Um, a lot of people will use terms like uh, disease foundations, um, or nonprofit organizations. Um, and, and I think we understand what we mean by that when you're talking about you know, a, a foundation that's developed, it's a nonprofit foundation that is geared towards helping uh, raise awareness, um, uh, develop therapies, do research, in a particular condition or a particular group of conditions. So we've all heard of, for example, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, American Cancer Society, the Muscular Dystrophy Association. So these are big organizations, but you can have even very small patient advocacy groups that are basically a family or maybe a few families that have come together because they have a child or children with a rare disease and there's nobody raising awareness for this and they decide that that's what they're going to do, right? And so these organizations typically um, are seen as raising awareness. Um, and many of us who are academics, we apply for grants. They're also seen as, as granting agencies where they give research money for, for doing research. 
Um, and, and, you know, uh, I mentioned that I came from, you know, uh, Glasgow University in, in the UK with a PhD to come to the US. And the reason I was able to get into a, a top training program, which was neurogenetics at Baylor College of Medicine, was because the Muscular Dystrophy Association actually gave me a postdoctoral fellowship to start my postdoctoral training. And that then just opens the doors and people say, oh, you've already got funding, you can just come and you know, do it in my lab. And so I could pick the lab and I got to pick that I want to work in this research project, right? And then when I finished my postdoctoral fellowship, before I got my own research lab, the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance gave me a seed grant that said, you know, this is going to make you more competitive than other postdoctoral fellows. So you're going to get you're going to get to set up a lab, and we know you're setting up a lab in FA. So it works for both both parties, right? So this is just to highlight how uh, patient advocacy groups can have an impact. Not, and I'm coming to the research part in a second, but just on the academic development and research development of you know people's careers. <clears throat> the other thing I would say is that, you know, for example, um, <clears throat> so, you know, a lot of the times when we interact with patient advocacy groups, it actually makes us interact with the people who have the condition that we're working on, right? So um, my PhD students and postdoctoral fellows, when they come to meetings that are organized by FARA, Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance, they get to interact with people who have FA. So they don't just see their research as tubes and cells and you know tissues and things like that. They're actually seeing why they're doing it. It keeps them grounded, keeps them driven. And not only that, they actually have to explain in the right context what it is they're doing and what the importance it is, uh, what the importance is of what they're doing. And and so I feel that interacting with patient advocacy groups can accelerate your research can make it re real, can keep it grounded, but also help your careers as you're sort of going forward. Um, you can also get access to patient tissues as we've done. You know, we've studied more than 100 FA patients and it's, this is a very rare disease and you, you, know, you can only do that if you have these connections. You also get great collaborations you set up with people. But I would say one more thing for academic researchers is that working with patient advocacy groups can also help your portfolio. So when, you know, I serve on the promotion and tenure committee here at the College of Medicine, and if people have, you know, done national leadership at some of these patient advocacy groups, that's another way to, so you're helping yourself, but you're also helping your research, you're helping your career, and you're helping your students. And so interacting with patient advocacy groups, I would say is a definite must um, uh, if you're working in a specific disease area. And you mentioned also that your mentees have worked with these groups. Yeah. Can you, can you mention more on that? Yeah, so, so you know, um, my, my PhD student who just graduated, um, you know, last month, uh, Lane Rodden, um, she actually got a chance to uh, speak at several conferences that were um, uh, where graduate students and postdoctoral fellows had to present their research to people and families who have FA. And so this is a way to learn not only how to communicate your science to researchers as we do all the time, but also to the lay audience. And I think that is something incumbent upon all of us to be able to do is to, to actually brush up on communications where we can do that with the lay audience. And so science is not this something in the ivory tower that only people, you know, understand technical terms will actually get what you're doing. All right, we've spent actually a fair amount of time talking about the science and outreach and the relationship between science and disease and the public. And one of the things that sometimes um, gets overlooked for academic uh, scientists 
is that they have teaching and mentoring duties as mm -hmm. well. And we tend to focus on the science. So you've actually got a very long track record of successful mentoring of PhD students and you've won a number of teaching awards. Uh, so your teaching is also excellent. So how does teaching um, and mentoring fit in with the research activities and how do you make that fit together into sort of this whole academic endeavor? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, First of all, I think when, when people think about teaching, um, you know, they, they think about teaching as, you know, a classroom, you've got, you know, a professor standing up there in front and you've got all these students sitting on and, and sort of getting this information from, you know, the, the professor. And, you know, yes, some of the teaching we do is like that. But a lot of the teaching that we do, both on the clinical side and on the research side, um, are actually team-based um, learning um, uh, strategies. So, for example, in the lab, you will have, um, you know, a PhD student working alongside a postdoctoral fellow working alongside. Um, in my lab, I always invite medical students and undergraduates to come, you know, and actually get research experience in the lab. So you'll have medical students, undergrads, and at this point, we also have a high school student who's there. And so what happens is, they're all working on a question, right? So they are doing these experiments. They're, everybody has their own take on it and everybody has their own you know, level of expertise and, 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 and interest. And, and so they're there, they're working alongside. I get in there and I'm also just sort of you know, asking questions and, and, and doing things. And that is the educational system that's actually developed for how you train PhD students. So I don't know of any other, actually I cannot think of any other, maybe classical music where you will have, you know, a mentee like a PhD student who interacts with you for four years every single day. And if you think about it, there, there's no other system where one mentor and one mentee spend that much time together over that much time, right? And so, so that is, there's no actual lecture going on, but it's an everyday thing where you are kind of, you know, asking questions, figuring out, you know, you know how not to, to, to fall into these pitfalls and things like that. And over time, failures and successes add up to the training. And so it takes a special kind of uh, mentor and mentee to make that relationship actually work to get a successful PhD uh, trained at the end of it. Now, obviously, it's not only the mentor who's doing it. There are postdoctoral fellows. There are specialized technicians who are also contributing to this educational system. So I, I just want people out there who are not in labs to understand, you know, what the culture is of this education and, and mentoring system that we call graduate training um, um, in neuroscience and in many other fields on this campus. What, what do you think makes a good mentor? And then Dr. Dunn, our last guest, he, he talked about the, the relationship between the mentor and a mentee is a two-way street. Yeah. A mentor has to play one role and then a mentee also has a certain obligation to be responsive to questions, answering emails, um, being attentive to, to the the questions of the mentor. How do you see that relationship? Yeah. So let me let me just say, you know, so I, I won't talk about any of the obvious things. You know, many people will say you've got to be, you know, hardworking and honest. And so let's not talk about all those things. Let's just say, you know, if you want to think about what a student um, uh, or, or mentee um, needs to have to actually succeed in, uh, you know, a graduate career, 
um, I would say, you know, first of all, they come to us because they have a deep love of science. Okay? They're they are already naturally inquisitive. So those are things you don't actually have to develop. They'll develop over time, but in general, those they come with, right? But I would say that there are some things that students come with varying degrees of, um, you know, expertise or, or, or experience in that then gets honed and actually gets perfected over time. And those are, for example, you know, setting aside your biases, Okay, how do you maintain an unbiased, I would, you know, you'll, you'll see a new student say, I really like this result. And I'm like, you're not supposed to like the result. You're supposed to know the result and interpret the result. You can like the final outcome, but not the result itself, right? So you keep, you set aside your biases. Um, and then I would say also, how do you work in a team? You know, the whole point of this educational system is teamwork. How do you develop collaborations with people within your team and outside of your team? And how do you actually reach out to people and, you know, actually make resources available to yourself? I would say even uh, part of this is also reaching out and developing mentorial relationships and cultivating mentorial relationships. Um, and I would also say communications. Now, it's, you know, different people have different levels of skill of communication, both verbal and written, when they come in. But over the time that they're in the lab or, or, or in school, um, they then develop these uh, communication skills even further that actually then helps them become even more collaborative and even more interactive with their mentors. And, and it just helps them sort of along the way in terms of presenting their results and things like that. Let me just stress one more thing that, again, communication, both technical and to the lay audience, because we really need to be doing our part in communicating with the general public. And I think that's something you guys are doing a great job here with your podcast. We mentioned at the beginning, you've lived a lot of places and trained at a lot of places. Oklahoma City, what, how do you like living here? Yeah. So actually, first of all, how did I get here? So, you know, I, I told you I was in medical school in, in India and then graduate school in Scotland. And, and then I came to the U.S. to, to uh, do my postdoctoral fellowship. Actually, it's even more interesting going backwards. I actually was born and brought up in, in West Africa. Um, so I've lived on several continents. Um, and so I always joke when I teach medical students and I say, you know, if anybody has this trajectory, the obvious place to end up is Oklahoma, obviously, right? Um, no, but really, actually, if you think about it, so, you know, our campus right now is going through this huge inflection, right? So we've got a new children's hospital. We've got this you know, new cancer center, new OU Health adult tower. And so you're seeing this sort of renaissance going on on this campus. Um, and this has been going on now for the past, let's say, five years, and we can see going out for another five years. Um, but a similar kind of inflection point happened um, in, in the mid-90s and towards, let's say, the early 2000s, where, you know, the Presbyterian Health Foundation, Stanton, Stanton L. Young, all of these guys put in a bunch of money into this campus to actually recruit people to come here. And so the, the Biomedical Research Center building, which is right next door here, the BRC, um, what's the old BRC was the new BRC. There wasn't the new BRC at that time. And that old BRC was when I first came in, that was the new building. And, and I actually got a lab where you actually tore off the, the plastics off the seat and you turned the taps on for the first time, like that kind of lab. Um, but the point I'm making here is that that was a period in which um, this Health Sciences Center campus decided to get serious about recruiting researchers. So, you know, really solid startup packages and, and good, you know, um, terms for sort of research and, and, you know, committed time commitments and things like that. So I'm, I have to say that I came here primarily because 
um, it had a very competitive recruiting environment. And, you know, I, obviously it's been fine for my career and I've really enjoyed being here. Now, I have to say that when I first came here, the restaurants weren't that great and there weren't that, you know, it was the art scene wasn't that great. And, and but I think over time and especially in the last 10 years, this place has become, you know, really cool in terms of uh, great restaurants, become a diverse place. So I, I think I've, I've, it's obviously grown on me over time, but it's also become a great place to now come to and, and talk about. You know? do, do you think neuroscience is an area that we're going to grow in? Do you think it's uh, something that if you were a student looking to, to study neuroscience, that they'd find a great environment to, to work? Yeah, so you know, one of the strengths of the neuroscience program that we have here is that we're not tied to one department, right? And and while some can see that as a as a you know as as a you know as not a strength, uh, because you know obviously this means that people are not in one building and and they're scattered all over the place. I actually think that's a strength because we are look. I'm a neurogeneticist. You know, we're talking to people in all kinds of areas of of neuroscience, and we're actually pulling in people. Uh, because we don't have a department, we're actually pulling in people who we might normally have overlooked in the past, right? So I think this is a, a really rich environment in terms of uh, uh, training. The other thing I would say is that our graduate program is actually really, really well designed in terms of exposing you know, the students to future careers, to in, you know, exposing them to um, all kinds of opportunities, even interacting with the lay audience out there and things like that. So that is actually a standout uh, uh, in our training program. So we've covered a lot of turf. Um, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to add into the discussion? Yeah, you know, so, uh, you know, you're obviously talking to me about my research and, and I just want to, you know, point out that, you know, we don't work in a vacuum, right? So um, I, I just want to thank a few uh, organizations that have been, um, you know, instrumental in, in making some of our research possible. So I mentioned the Muscular Dystrophy Association earlier and uh, the Friedrichs Ataxia Research Alliance. Uh, they funded a lot of our research. They've given me lots of opportunities to, to serve, you know, in leadership roles. Um, and, and, you know, I'd be remiss if I did not thank um, the Children's Hospital Foundation. So just let me just say one thing. So, you know, when you introduced me, you said the, the Claire Gordon Duncan Chair um, so technically, that's a, a children's hospital foundation, Claire Gordon Duncan Chair, and the CHF or Children's Hospital Foundation is a local, uh, community-based um, uh, foundation. Again, nonprofit um, that's dedicated to raising um, the the care, being the, raising the quality of care, and doing research on children's conditions. Um, here at the Children's Hospital on our campus. And so they raise money in the community that allows them to make what are called chair positions that allow them to recruit people who would not normally consider coming to Oklahoma. Um, then they also give money for uh, research programs. So for example, in our diagnostic labs, um, we can now do things like whole exome sequencing because they gave us a couple of million dollars to be able to purchase the equipment needed to do that, to recruit the right kind of people to make that test become possible. That's just in genetics. I mean, they've been doing it in all kinds of fields, endocrinology, et cetera. So again, I'd like to thank the CHF for their constant support and making that possible. Um, and finally, if I can just say, you know, no, I, I just want to also thank um, my uh, the, the trainees and the students who actually um, you know, um, had the confidence in actually having me as their mentor over time. So I've been doing this for 20 years now. So um, it's fun to see them all in, in you, know, uh, uh, you know, really being successful and, and having their own careers flourish. But again, I, I think I should thank them because it goes both ways, as you said earlier. Okay, so 
One last question for you, and, and this sort of goes back to the fact that you've been all over the world, and one of the big places that has been a stop for you in your career was in Scotland, which brings us to the question that's really probably on everybody's mind, which is haggis. Why? <laughs> right, a great question. So, um, um, first of all, you know, there must be people out there who don't know what haggis is. And, and haggis is, is, a, is really a sausage at the end of the day. Um, and it's, it's not very attractive when you look at it, which is really why all these jokes are made about it. Um, it's really a loose uh, binding of a sheep's stomach with some combination of unknown meats that are put into it. And it's not stuffed like a sausage, it's loose. And so it's got this really ugly look to it. Um, it's obviously traditional in Scotland. And I got, I got a funny story for you about that. So, um, you know, I, I was a PhD student and I used to eat in the cafeteria of the, the, the children's hospital where my, my uh, you know, lab was. And, and once a week, uh, they would have haggis. And, you know, so you had obviously a choice of all kinds of things. And I mean, you could always see the haggis sitting there. Not many people would take it. And, and uh, but one time they had this thing and it said, um, Indian curry haggis. And I was like, I think I should try that. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I did try it. And, you know, I convinced myself that what's inside is, I don't know, ground beef or something that's, you know, you couldn't really tell what it was. It was all right. But yeah. <laughs> Who knows why? <laughs> black, black pudding. Um, so black pudding is is all over the UK. It's not only Scotland. That is. So listen, all of this has goes back to the time when you know you ate the entire animal, right, from nose to tail. Like you ate the whole thing, and so black pudding is basically cooked blood sausage. And it sounds awful, but it's actually part of the English breakfast. That's really standard. And let's not go to Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for coming today and talking to us on a range of topics, including haggis and neuroscience. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Um, we've really enjoyed having you here on our second episode of Neuroscience Frontier, the podcast of the OU Neuroscience Graduate Program. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. If you're interested in learning more about neuroscience and neurosurgery here at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center, you can find more information at the Neurosurgery and Neuroscience webpage at medicine.ouhsc.edu.